0: It'll either be a really short sermon, or it'll be a Michael Jordan experience where I just keep going. Uh, we are finishing up <clears throat> First Peter chapter 3. We are in verses 18 through 22, which is only four verses, and I'm sure some of you are like, how in the heck is he going to speak... A sermon on four verses. And if you are visiting with us this morning, I apologize. This is some deep, heavy stuff in these four verses. Uh, There's a lot, a lot, a lot here. Um, Before I start, though, I just want to just remind you guys. um, Last year, the world shut down and and we didn't do a lot of our normal things. And this year, the world is not shutting down. Um, And so Easter is three weeks away, believe it or not. Uh, And so we are having our Monday, Thursday service this year. And if you're new to our church, that means uh, we will have a meal together, a simple supper. Um, Please don't come expecting a fellowship meal. It's not a fellowship meal. It's a simple supper together to just remember Jesus's last supper with the disciples. So if you're like, if you need to eat beforehand, that's okay. Um, This is not a meal to get you full. This is a meal to have fellowship together. Uh, But we'll have communion as well foot washing and and a a time of just a sermon, not a sermon, but just a time of reflections, looking at some different aspects from this, from the Jesus's last hours with his disciples, some prayer. Um, So you're all invited to that. Again, we have a sign up sheet for that also out in the lobby. And it would be nice if you are planning to come to sign up just so we know how many to plan for, for for the regards of the food, um, the communion, uh, where to set up foot washing. So if that's something you plan to be at six o'clock, On April 1st, it's not an April Fool's Day joke. It's actually April 1st, is Monday, Thursday. We'd love to have you come. If you've never experienced some of those things, if you're like, you're not touching my feet, that's okay. Uh, You can still come. You don't have to have your foot washed or feet washed. Um, But we still would encourage you to come and be a part of that special time. And then Easter, uh, we will have breakfast together at 9 a.m. No Sunday school, we'll have breakfast together. That will be a fellowship style. Please come hungry. There'll be plenty of food to share. Um, and then after breakfast, we'll just fellowship together until we start church at 10, 1030. So um, just those two things that are, that are popping up. And also, uh, it wasn't in the prayer list, but I just want to specifically ask for prayer for our family. Um, we have our my Karen's mom, my mother-in-law, is going to come stay with us for roughly a month uh, next weekend. And three of the next four weekends, we have to travel east uh, to get Karen's mom, Lydia's got a soccer thing, a funeral. Um, the only time over the next four m- weeks, literally over the next month, four weeks that we're going to be together as a family is literally like Easter weekend. Uh, it's just going to be a crazy time for like the next four weeks. Um, and we're not going to really, like, I won't see my wife much. Um, so just appreciate the prayers for that as we kind of wrestle having mom here and uh, going out for a funeral and everything else in between. So um it's I knew March was gonna be crazy, but I didn't realize it was gonna be this this crazy. So I just appreciate prayer. Um and if you don't see my wife for a while, it's not cause she hates all of you, it's because she's just not gonna be around except Easter weekend, uh as she helps take care of her mother who just had heart surgery about a month ago. So all right. So first Peter chapter three Basically, Peter is summing up, he's finishing, he's he's ending this whole like you're suffering for Christ, uh, you're suffering for righteousness sake. He's going to put a period on this in verse what we call 22. And then he goes into this using your gifts, being a good steward in chapter four. And that's what we're going to look at after Easter. So we'll we'll hit pause today. Come back to this, finish up this book after Easter. So I, I, I did a little bit of homework. I was curious, like I know there's a lot of slaves still in the world um, I know there's over 27 million people still enslaved in our world today. Um, actually, that number has risen. Um, but, you know, due to the caste system, due to diff- human trafficking, different things like that. But I was curious, like, you know, we, like Peter's talking about suffering. And obviously in Peter's day, people were dying for their faith. There was a lot of martyrs. Um, we know that that happens in our world today, but I don't know that we think about it because it's not happening directly to us here in America. So I was just curious, you know. What, what, like, what does that look like? And, um, I went to a couple different world, uh, websites. One was Open Doors, uh, which just talks about martyrs and what's going on. And Open Doors is a, is a website that specifically deals with the 50 countries in the world that are considered red. Um, so in other words, like, they most dangerous countries to go to. Uh, many times Christians are not allowed to go to those countries. Um, like, Sri Lanka's on that list, Iran is on that list, Pakistan is on that list. Um, which I know missionaries in all three of those places, so they're there under secretiveness, whatever. Um, but anyway, that's kind of what Open Doors specifically deals with, but they also just keep some numbers. I don't know how accurate these numbers are. You know, please don't, like, think this is, like, the law. But I just was kind of curious, what does that look like as as Peter, as we're wrapping up this whole suffering for for righteousness sake? As we think about... We suffer for Christ's sake. And, and suffering in our country is going to look different than Iran or Pakistan or Sri Lanka. But I just I found this interesting. In the 20th century, so we're in the 21st century. In the 20th century alone, 26.5 million Christians were martyred. 26 million Christians were martyred in the 20th century. That's like five times the amount of people that died in the early church. And the... Uh, Again, on an average, on an average day, eight Christians die per day right now in 2021. On an average day around the world, not in the United States, but around the world, eight Christians are dying every single day for their faith. That's why in some of these countries, man, it it matters because when you say yes, you may be literally giving up your life like in that moment. So on average, eight Christians die per day. I know that number is not a big number compared to the amount of people dying of, of lack of food, like in 30-hour family. But still, that's eight brothers and sisters who are going home every single day. From uh, 2000 to 2010, just 10-year span of the last decade, 2000 to 2010, 1.6 million Christians were martyred for their faith. And in 2010 to 2020, uh, that that number was actually significantly less. It was actually 1.2 million people died for their faith. But roughly, on average, again, just roughly, on average from a few things, 90,000 believers die annually, which is basically represents 1% of the world population. So on average, annually, 1% of the world's population who are, who are... I mean, 1% of the population, this 1% claims Christ, are losing their life for the kingdom. So I, I don't know, like I just... Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but I just I kinda wanted to see some of those numbers as I just think about this, like because I forget because of where I live that man people truly are suffering in much deeper ways than some of the things we're suffering from. We're we're frustrated of maybe losing some rights or losing a voice, but we have to remember that our brothers and sisters around the world are dying for this exact same gospel, this exact same faith. So it's still happening is the point of me sharing those numbers. I'm not trying to be a debbie downer i'm not trying to depress you all but just remind us that we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters we need to be praying for the word the church at large because people are actually losing their lives still for the kingdom Uh, much more so than even in Jesus' day but obviously there's a lot more people so um anyway so first peter 3 18 through 22 i'm going to read it and then we're going to start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start so, Romans, well, not Romans, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is where it's going to get interesting. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a Which in wow. And while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subject to him. Like I said... As a very deep four verses, very deep. So this is the third time that Peter has talked about the theology of the cross in this book, in this letter. He talked about it in one, chapter one, 14 through 21. He talked about the cost of redemption, that it gives hope to believers. He talked about it in two, 21 through25, that we're going to face abuse, and just like Christ faced the abuse on the cross. So this is the third time that he shares his theology of the cross, essentially with believers. Starting in verse 18, that's the theology. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in flesh and made alive in the spirit. But he goes on. And the one thing that's different in this time as he focuses up then on the end So the end of this verse 22, who has gone into heaven. At the right hand of God, with angels, authorities and powers being subject to him. And he starts that and the, the phrase right before that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want you, if nothing else, remember that phrase, underline that phrase, um, because obviously that is the most significant part of these four verses. I mean, this is a great precursor to Easter message, right? The significance of the cross includes the resurrection and the authority of our risen Lord and Savior, because without resurrection, it's nothing. Right? Right. 90% of the world believes Jesus lived. Most false religions believe Jesus lived as a man. They believe he was born. They believed he lived and whether he was just a good person or a good man or even a prophet. But the thing that defines this, the thing that changes us from every other religion, the things that makes Christianity work is that phrase, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we looked at this on Wednesday night with the group that was here. Jesus talking in, in John 10 and 11, how he had the authority to do that. He says, he No one made me do this. I have this authority. I was given this authority and I did this on my own will. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then this is all for naught. Easter works because not the, just the cross, because many people died on the cross. In fact, thieves and liars and, and horrible people died on the cross on a daily basis. The reason that Easter works is because it was an empty tomb. Because Jesus rose, because Jesus was everything he said he was in that moment when they ran to the grave and it was empty. So this all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is ultimately saying. He's like, you can suffer. You can put up with things. You can deal with bad marriages. You can deal with messed up political systems. You can deal with slavery. All of this because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because in that he saves us and completes us and everything works because of that. And the other two times we talked about his theology on the cross, he didn't leave that out. He just, this time he focuses on that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So everything lands on that. Easter is not about bunnies and chocolate and finding eggs. Easter is about the death of Jesus, but more importantly, his, his resurrection from death, that he conquered the grave. He conquered the grave. So verse 18, verse 18 has these four aspects Right? The first one is Christ also suffered. So I just I mean I just I just wrote down like a little hashtag, four aspects, verse eighteen, hashtag number one, A, B, however you want to do it, Christ suffered for sins. Why? Because we're sinful. So for me, I wrote down Christ suffered for me. Christ suffered. Once for sins. He, he suffered. He had to suffer because of me, because I am sinful, because you are sinful. Christ suffered. I also just reminded myself this week that he knows suffering. And when we're going through tough times, when we're going through life, when it doesn't seem fair, when it feels like life is falling apart and we think no one understands, the reality is Jesus understands. Christ was fully God, but fully man. He suffered. And he was rejected by his hometown. He was the product of a whatever kind of marriage. He was the suspect kid of how did Mary get pregnant before Joseph and Mary were together. His hometown told him to get out, that he was a lunatic, that he was a crazy person for most of his adult life. His own family thought he was nuts. It wasn't until his death and resurrection that his brothers actually came to know him as Christ. Before that, they thought he was nuts. It's in Mark where they try to take him away. They try to go keep him quiet because he's acting like a lunatic. So his family rejected him. His hometown rejected him. He came to preach to the Jews. They rejected him. They persecuted him. They beat him. They put him on a cross. He was innocent. He wasn't given a fair trial. He wasn't given a fair death. Christ suffered. So when you're sitting there and you're like, no one knows my suffering. I'm all alone. It's so unfair. No one understands. The reality is God understands. And he understands as a human being because he did it as a human being. He walked through it as a human being. He had all those emotions as a human being. The next part of that, that verse, he suffered once for sins. Once and for all, it was over. And I love that. Darla and Dwayne have been talking about that a lot lately. Like they've said so many times how they're thankful. We don't have to do sacrifices every single Sunday, right? We don't have rams here. We don't have turtle doves here. We don't have cows here. We don't have sheep here. Christ died once and for all. We don't have to keep going over and over and over to get saved because he died once and for all. He suffered once for sins on that cross. It was finished. Ikaba. finished. We don't have to go through that again. We don't have to earn something again because he did it once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, Christ was innocent. He didn't deserve this. We are not innocent and we do deserve it. We deserve punishment for our sins. We deserve suffering. We deserve to be punished. And yet God said, I'm going to take that all away from you. I was the only righteous one. I was the only clean one. I was the only lamb unblemished. And I died for all of you, even though you deserve it. I'm taking the place, the righteous for the unrighteous. The only innocent person to ever live. The only innocent person to truly ever die. Because even if someone said, Hey, I was innocent and they suffered a crime, they're not innocent because they're sinners. Christ is the only innocent person to be punished and suffer and die, the righteous for the unrighteous. And we are not innocent and we deserved punishment, and he took that on himself. What? That he might bring us to God. A simple purpose. Simply to restore us to God. So right there in in that 18, four aspects. Christ suffered for everyone. He knew suffering. He suffered once and for all. It's over. We don't have to keep crucifying. We don't have to keep going to the cross. We don't have to keep asking forgiveness for our sin, like uh, accepting him in our life over and over and over and over again. Yes, we need to repent of our sins. Christ was innocent. He didn't deserve this. We are not innocent. We did. And the simple, simple purpose was to bring us to God. It's so simple. Bring us to God. In other words, we messed up creation. We messed up the world. And and Jesus said, I'm going to bring you back to God. I'm going to close that gap. I'm going to close that chasm. You will be able to enter his presence again. You'll be able to commune with the Lord. I'm going to bring you to God. And that's why he died. That's why we can pray. That's why we can sing. That's why we can feel the Holy Spirit in us because of that gap that Jesus closed, bringing us to God. We don't need a priest anymore. We don't have to go through a person. We don't have the Holy of Holies. We don't have the massive building. We don't have the big tent. We don't have to do any sacrifices because God brought or Jesus brought us into God's presence that he might bring us to God. The next part of this verse, it just keeps getting deeper. And and by deeper, I mean theology, like, wow, being put to death in flesh and made alive in spirit. So in other words, Christ once and for all died to flesh. And he came back, but not fully as a human. He came back as this new incarnated body, this heavenly body that we're all going to have. And we know that in it you could see his wounds because Thomas wanted to needed to touch them. Thomas and other people saw them. There was the wound in his side. There was a wound in his hand. We know he could eat because he made breakfast for the disciples there on the water when he restored Peter. And he said, go feed my sheep three different times. But scriptures is clear to say, look, he was put to death in flesh. So all the things of flesh, all the temptations, all the things of man were gone. Those were put to death, but he was made alive in spirit. And so this new body that he had ultimately was this spirit that's going to live forever, which is maybe was his true flesh all, all, all along because we don't know anything about what Christ or God looks like, really. We have these few little picture, word pictures in the Bible. All we know is that every time anyone is in the presence of God, they're overwhelmed and they're usually on their hands and knees just in awe. We know that we will receive new bodies because our spirit is what lives forever. This body of mine which at times fails me and yours do too, they're going to die. They're not going to live forever. These bodies are just shells for our spirit that will live forever when we get this new body. And he's like, look, he put the death in the flesh. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew ten thirty-eight. 38, right? And let me read that to you. Matthew ten thirty-eight. He says, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus tells his disciples, he tells us, as he wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, look, you've got to die to self. You're going to have to pick up your cross. And what did the cross mean? The cross meant death. I mean, if if I'm living in Jesus' day and I say, you have to pick up your cross, everyone knew what that meant. Because when you were sentenced to death on the cross... You were taken out. You literally had to carry your own cross to wherever that place was. The cross was put in the ground. You were then nailed to it and you died. So for Jesus to say, look, you've got to pick up your cross. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and follow me. And if you can't do that, you're not worthy. He was essentially telling the apostles and, and the disciples and everyone listening, you have to die to self. This is what, what Peter's talking about. He died to flesh, but he was alive in spirit. He's like, you got to lose your life so that you can gain it. In other words, everything that you're living for—the human side of you—that says, "I need to live for power and fame and authority and good looks or whatever it may be—all these things that we battle—he's like, you got to put that to death. You got to die to that. You got to you got to put, pick up your cross and die to your earthly flesh. And live for the spirit. That's why so many times I say, guys, where are our eyes? Where's our focus? Is our focus on heaven? Is our focus on where we're going to be? Are we living for the kingdom of heaven or are we living for the kingdom of our souls in this world? Because if our focus is not on heaven, if our focus is not on the end goal, if our focus is not on where we actually belong, then it's really hard to pick up our cross and die to self. Because we're so tied to self and we're so tied to here. But Peter reminds us that Jesus died to flesh and he was made alive in the spirit. He proved he was the son of God. He proved he wasn't just a good man. He proved he wasn't just a prophet. He proved he wasn't just the next Messiah, so to speak. But he was the one and only. And I just want to read this to you and we'll probably read it again in a few weeks. But I just want to read it. Because it just wraps this up. It's from Isaiah 52. And a lot of you probably have these part memorized. But Isaiah 52, 13 on through all of 53. Just, Just listen. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human assemblance. That his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's suffering, guys. His appearance was so marred. It says that his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. That's that innocent, that righteous person suffering for us. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For, what which, for that which was not been told to them to see, and that which they have heard, they understood. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of God been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire in him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, equated with grief, one from whom many men had, had, sorry, hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. And he bore our griefs, he bore our sorrows, he chose this. And yet we're like, oh, mankind said he was smitten by God, he was stricken. The Pharisees mocked him and said, where's your God now? He's not there. This is exactly what Isaiah is talking about. He's, he's prophesying the very life and death of Jesus. He was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his, with his wounds we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned every one to his own way. No one is innocent. We're all guilty. We're all sheep that have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of many people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has has him put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, we shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, that he bear that he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he and he shall divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah talking about this very thing that Peter's talking about, this very life that Jesus lived, all of that that Isaiah talks about in the Old Testament, and yet Israel didn't understand. The Jews didn't get it. They didn't understand why Jesus had to suffer, why he had to die. They were looking for a Messiah that would free them from the here and now. They were looking for a Messiah that would free them from Rome. They were looking for a Messiah that would restore Israel to its former glory, like in the days of David and Solomon. And what they did not understand, and what Jesus and God have been saying all along, is it was never about the here and now. It's always about eternity with God. It's about restoring you so you can be with God. He died what? To bring us to God. It's restoring that tainted, ugly, unfortunate relationship that we had because we're born as sinners. So that we could be with God and spend eternity with God. Which is far greater than anything would have done to overthrow Rome. He overthrows Rome. He lives 60 years. He dies and the world goes on. But Christ overthrew the grave. He overthrew the grave. He said, not in my house, baby, not in my house. And he kicked Satan to the curb. He overthrew the grave. and He made us alive in the spirit so we can live forever with the Lord, because that's what it's all about. And Israel didn't understand that. And they were mad and they were angry because he didn't satisfy them right there in that moment. And he kept trying to get guys. You don't get it. I'm I'm this bread that you'll have forever. I'm this life that you'll have forever. It's this eternity thing. It's just like the woman at the well. And he says, hey, I can give you something. You'll never get thirsty again. Give me that water. She's like, I want that water. She probably wanted to bottle that water and make money off that water. Even then she's like, no, you don't get it. It's me that you want. I'm that for your life. So that's verse 18. I told you there's a lot there. Now verse 19 gets really weird. So, it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And I know some of you are like, what in the world is that talking about? Well, the first thing I want to say is that there, there are three different views on this one verse. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay? So, the, the first view is, is just it's simply a metaphor. Um, and they, and people view, think that because of the next verse, because, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited for the days of Moa, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is the eight persons were brought safely through the water. And so a lot of people believe this is just simply a metaphor that in the days of Noah, when God wiped out the earth and he saved eight, and by the way, the eight were saved, not simply because they went into the ark, they were saved because what they obeyed God's word. We're saved because we obey God's word by accepting Christ in our life. They were saved because they built the ark, but by building the ark, they obeyed God's word. And so the ark becomes that symbol of baptism, which we'll get to in a minute. Right. So some people believe this is just a metaphor that he went down and proclaimed to all these people that died in the days of old because of the Noah whole verse saying, look, see, I told you you should have obeyed. And now this is your punishment. So that's one view that's out there. There's just simply a metaphor and nothing else. The second view, which has become huge in the church today, probably not. Obviously, I don't hope you've never heard that here at Sycamore. I know you've never heard it from my mouth, but the view that is being taught in the American church in the emergent church group with the likes of Rob Bell and others is that you get a second chance after death. Basically, we've brought back purgatory and this is being taught around America, in the church, that this verse is simply saying that when you die, you go to prison, that your spirit is in prison, and it stays there until the day of judgment. And so in this verse, there is hope for you that a loving God would never actually punish you for not choosing him, and that you'll get a second chance after death to come out of prison and spend eternity with God. That is the whole premise of the book, Love Wins, by Rob Bell. It is an absolutely horrible book. I would not suggest you read it. I did read it because I wanted to know what it said, and I had kids buying into it when I was a youth pastor, so I read it. And that's why the book Erasing Hell was written by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. Because they said, this is so outlandishly wrong, we've got to counteract this book. But it's being taught in churches around America that you get a second chance. They we, We make fun of the Catholics, I've heard that, for believing in purgatory, and yet we're teaching it in the emergent church. We're teaching it around our country that purgatory essentially exists again, and you can get out of hell because of this one Verse. Which makes absolutely no sense and there's no there's no grounds for it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't go with any of scripture and nowhere does it ever say we get a second chance. Now, the third thought about this particular verse and the most common thought amongst Bible believing scholars is that they're talking about Christ visiting the demons in Hades now, the reason though I most people believe that is what this is talking about is because, first off, in scriptures, when we use the term spirit, it is always referred to as fallen angels. We are never referred to as spirits. We are referred to as God's children. We are referred to as human beings. We are referred to as souls. And so every time the word spirit is used, or authorities, or powers, it's generally talking about the spiritual world. Every other time in the New Testament, when it talks about spirits, it's talking about fallen angels, these spirits. That roam the earth, right? Prison is talked about three different times in scriptures. It's talked about in Jude chapter or Jude is one book. So verse six and revelations 20 verse seven. And both in revelations and Jude, it talks about the fallen angels are in prison, And they stay in prison until the day of judgment. And there's parts of this, guys, I cannot explain to you. There's parts of this I don't understand. And there's parts of this if we're all honest, no one understands. Like, for a fact, I don't understand why some demons are in prison and some demons are allowed to roam. I don't know. I can't answer that because I'm not God. But it's pretty clear that there's demonic power because Ephesians 6.12 tells us that. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, principalities, and authorities of this present age. So we know that Satan and his minions rule the world. We know that a third of them chose Satan over God. That talks about in Isaiah, talks about in the Old Testament, when the angels and the stars had fallen. We know that. We know a third of the angels chose to go with Satan, opposed to staying in heaven as angels. And for some reason, some of those third were cast in prison and some were not. Now, there's all kinds of books out there about why, and um, you can read those, but we have, no, we have no knowledge of why. But what we do know is that when Scripture talks about prisons, it's always talking about the places of darkness, Hades, and the only time it talks about prisons is fallen angels being in there. Another reason why most people do not believe this means you get a second chance is because it doesn't say he went and preached. It doesn't say he went and gave them salvation. It simply says he went and proclaimed. In other words, Jesus went down to Hades where these fallen angels were in prison and said, I told you so. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it in layman's terms. He went down there and proclaimed, I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. God did give me this authority, not Lucifer. You chose the wrong side. You're playing for the wrong team. And now you're going to be in prison forever because of your choice. Now, there's a book of there is a book out there that is is proven to be truth. It's proven to be legit. We don't have it in our Bible, but it's the book of Enoch. And the reason why most people believe this, the, what I just told you, that third aspect is because of the book of Enoch. And in the book of Enoch, it talks about if you guys remember, Enoch was the guy in the Old Testament that lived 365 days and he was no more. It just says God took him. So a lot of people believe that in Revelations, when we have the two prophets at the Wailing Well, that it's actually going to be Enoch and Elijah, not Enoch, not Elijah and Moses, because Enoch and Elijah are the only two earthly men that have never died. Well, to go to heaven, you eventually have to die. And we know from Revelations that those two witnesses that will spend three and a half years at the Wailing Wall will eventually die. They will be killed by the Antichrist and his false prophet. So most people, again, I told you this was deep, but I'm just giving you what I know. You guys can study it, look at it, go, you're crazy. That's fine. But most people believe that Enoch and Elijah, the two men that didn't actually die, will be those two witnesses that then will eventually die so that they will have their new heavenly bodies. Enoch, either way, Enoch never died. It says in Genesis he just went to be with God. And in the book of Enoch, it talks about that Enoch was sent to the prisons in Hades to basically tell the spirits they were wrong. Because Enoch would have lived in the days of Noah. He was taken away shortly before the ark was finished and would have, when the, and people would have entered the ark. And the book of Enoch claims, Enoch claims, or whoever wrote the book, claims that I went and I basically preached to the prison cells of Hades that these demons were wrong. So again, for what it's worth, that's why most people believe that's what this verse is talking about. That Jesus went to that same place and basically said, he was telling the truth. Noah warned you that you needed to repent. Enoch came and told you that you were wrong. And I'm letting you know that I have won. And because of your choice, now this is your eternity and doom and destruction. Again, to the fallen angels. So we could probably spend... Three days talking about if that's correct or not. But I just wanted to share with you, like I said, there was some deep, deep stuff there. So, if you ever want a chance to read Enoch, go for it. I'd encourage you to read it. It, it talks a lot about this. And, and Jude refers to Enoch in that verse 6 of Jude. Revelations refers to Enoch. So it was clearly a book that these guys used and had. But when we put the Bible together, they decided to not include the book of Enoch in the canon. And I don't know why, because I was not there. So... Anyway, the other aspect of that is that most people that would follow that train of thought, that believe that Enoch went and talked to these people, most people believe that in Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, those men of God married the daughters of Eve or the daughters of Adam. Most people believe that fallen angels, as, because they had already fallen, they had already left heaven, they had chose Satan, that they chose to marry mankind. Hence, you have the Nephilim and the giants Um, And so these men of God that had once been angels were marrying the women of the earth and having children and that just Expounded the wickedness And so when the ark came and the eight people went in the ark all of those people were wiped out all of them Because the only people that survived were moses his wife or not moses. Sorry, noah his wife and his three sons and their three wives so again for what it's worth, we'll, we'll stop there. I don't want to keep going with that, but I just wanted you to know those three thoughts. And my point is, I want you to know those three thoughts are out there because different things are taught. But most importantly, what scares the tar out of me is that the church is teaching that you don't have to live for God here on earth, that it's OK to live however you want, because if you die, you get a second chance. And that's the whole premise of the emergent church. The whole premise of the emergent church start off pure and good. We want people to come to church. We want to be a seeker-friendly church. So we're going to make our churches more seeker-friendly. But as they went through the 90s and through the early 2000s, what they realized is that people don't want to change their ways. People don't want to walk away from sin. People don't want to live differently. So the emergent church began to change doctrine to make it easier and easier and easier to be a quote unquote Christian to the point that they're now teaching. It doesn't matter how you live here on earth. It doesn't matter what you do, because you'll get a second chance in death, just like it says here in first Peter chapter three. That's scary. That's Gnosticism in its full form that Paul and Peter and James and John dealt with in the early church. Where they said it didn't matter what you do in your body, it's only what you do in your spirit. I mean, we've recreated Gnosticism in the 2000s. Again, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, nothing is new under the sun. Sin is sin and we will always find a way to justify it. But yet we have people family members perhaps even who believe this lie and they think they're saved and they're going about daily life however they want to. They're not letting Christ change them from the inside out because they truly believe they'll get a second chance. And that's a scary thought for me as a pastor. And I hope it's a scary thought for you as a believer because that could be your son, your daughter, your granddaughter, your nephew, your niece, your brother, your sister that have bought into that lie and believe that they're fine. Because of the false teachers out there, the wolves in sheep's clothing. Okay, moving on. Verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. And so again, baptism, the ark represents baptism. And we we see that there were eight people saved when the ark happened. Why? Because their obedience to build the ark, to enter the ark, to obey God. The ark was simply a symbol of their obedience to God. The same way that we have a baptism today to show our inward obedience to God, right? We come to know God, we get saved. And at some point in time, hopefully pretty early on, we get baptized because we want the Christian church. We want our brothers and sisters to know, hey, something inside me has changed. I'm a new person. I'm regenerated. The old is gone and the new is here. The, the baptism. Baptism does not save us. Baptism is an outward expression of what's going on in the heart. In the same way that the ark was a symbol of what their obedience to God. So, yes, the ark saved them from the flood, but the ark was there because of their obedience to God. They were in the ark because of their obedience to God. And so it all started with obedience and the obedience started in the heart. Noah could have said, dude, you're crazy. I'm not building an ark. We don't even know what rain is, let alone a flood. Why in the world would I build an ark? And for a hundred years, he built that ark and he was persecuted and he suffered and he was made fun of. I love that video that John and and Diana brought back from the the, uh, ark encounter. Now, granted, they took liberties to create it, but it's just funny the way that they're interviewed and they're kind of mocking Noah because... The reality is, Noah was made fun of. He was considered a crazy man. He was a radical. He was building this massive boat for no apparent reason, simply because God told him to. But it saved his family and ultimately saved the world. So, baptism. Baptism is this outward expression. Now, baptism, again, is a huge, huge topic. It's huge because. The number one thing that has killed Christians up until recently is honestly the issue of baptism. You guys realize that like during the Reformation, during the term when, the, when these Anabaptists came about. And by the way, if you don't know that, Mennonites come from the Anabaptist flow. There's a lot of history this morning. Anabaptist flow. Anabaptist does not say anti-Baptist. Okay? Okay. Man, when I was first heard about Anabaptists and Mennonites, I swear they were saying anti-Baptists. And I'm like, why are they against the Baptists? What did the Baptists ever do to them? Right? No. Anabaptists literally means to be baptized again. And so of that thread were your Amish, your Mennonites, your brethren, your brethren in Christ, and actually the Baptists. And they so they came out of that reformation. And what they simply said is, as we study scriptures, as we look at scriptures, we've got to stop baptizing infants. So people like Dirk Phillips, Pilgrim Manpeg, Balthazar, uh, I can't even pronounce his last name. Those are some of the early reformers that said, guys, we've got to stop baptizing babies. Because even after Luther put on the 95 thesis, even after Luther reformed the church, they were still baptizing children and they believed that baptism would save you. So this verse, verse 20 and 21, became huge in the early church. The number one reason that martyrs happened in the early church in those early days of the Reformation was literally over the topic of baptism. All those three men I mentioned died because they believed in a baptizing again. They believed in an adult's baptism. They believe that you could not baptize children. I mean, they said you can baptize them all you want, but it's not going to save them. It doesn't accomplish anything. You have to choose to be baptized as an adult. Again, you can define what that age is When's an adult. But ultimately, when you understand what you're doing, when you're saying, I'm committing my life to the Lord, I want to live for the Lord. And this issue of baptism, which we laugh at now and we think, well, that's no big deal. That was radical at one point in time. And thousands upon thousands of early church reformers died over this issue. They were slaughtered. They were killed. They were considered heretics. They were burned at the stake. They were drowned. They had ropes and uh, rocks tied to their legs and they were thrown into the river. They were killed on a daily basis because they believed in baptism as we now do all the time. It's amazing how these little things can just just disrupt everything, right? And so we look at that and go like, wow, people are considered radical for baptism. But yet today, aren't we considered radical because we call marriage between a man and a woman? I mean, we laugh at this baptism thing, but today in 2021, if uh, you have to define marriages between a man and a woman, if you don't, people don't know what you mean. And when you say, I believe marriage is between only a man and a woman, that's how God ordained marriage, that's God's plan for marriage, you're considered a radical. You're considered a conservative. You're considered a weirdo. You, you're not liberal in your thinking. You're not being kind. What about the emergent church? What about all these people out there? How, I mean, we're considered radicals because of our beliefs on marriage. These guys were considered radicals because of their belief on baptism. And so when you read a confession of faith the believers baptism like we have in our confession of faith and all those different churches I mentioned have you'll see writings from that very early beginning and they quote this verse right here 1st Peter 3:20 20 and 21 and they quote other things because they were making it clear that baptism is a decision as an adult it's not an infant thing and even in the baptist church you have to be careful because the Southern Baptists believe, like we do, that you should be baptized as, a, as an adult. But the Reformed Baptists still baptize children. Reformed Presbyterians still baptize children. There are many denominations out there that still believe in baptizing children, and that saves you. And again, you have no idea until you enter that church what they may or may not believe. But my, my brother-in-law is a pastor in a church, the guy that my sister's married to, who believes in infant baptism. You can imagine he and I have gone round and round. Not really. He doesn't talk to me. Um, it's truth. He doesn't talk to me. Um, but he believes in infant baptism and he, and he's, and he teaches that. And there are, again, there are churches out there that believe in that. So this idea of baptism saves was an issue. And Peter was making it clear that baptism is important. We need baptism. But what saves you is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, baptism, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. But he goes on. There's a huge comma there. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, Peter's saying, look, we want you to be baptized. We, we're asking people to get, be baptized. We understand this. And we want you to remember, baptism isn't going to save you. It's not going to save you. But it shows the body what's going on. And not only that, it, it allows the body, allows our, each other to say, you know what, I'm a believer, and I got Jesus in me, and, and I want to be baptized, and I want you to hold me accountable. And likewise, I want to do life with you. I mean, that's what baptism is all about. It shows what's going on, on the inside. It doesn't save us. It doesn't remove dirt from the body, but it's an appeal. To God, through a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, if Jesus' resurrection, like I started with, hadn't happened, then baptism would mean nothing, salvation would mean nothing, everything we talked about would mean nothing, because it all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, and, and Jesus rising from the di- dead, God gave his provision the same way that he saved people through the ark and gave them provision. But what got them in the ark was their obedience. And so the ark is that symbol of baptism to the world. The world was cleansed. The ark landed on the mountain. There was provision and God started over with mankind. And when we go down for baptism, it's that symbol of the old in me is going away and I'm being cleansed. Or if you get poured or however you do it, you know, in, in the different churches, because there's no right or wrong way to baptize. Even though we fought over that and killed people over that as well. But it's that symbol that I'm this old person this new in me. And I'm new because of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the whole idea of going down, death, coming up, resurrection. That, that's, the, that's where that idea came from. We're symbolizing the death to my sins, the death to my flesh, and the alive in my spirit, the resurrection of my spirit because of Jesus' death on the cross, because of and his resurrection from the grave, that I can have that same in my life And that's why you see a lot of people with baptism going down and up. So through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and Peter finishes on this note, he says, so he's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God, which is what all the prophets talked about. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the list goes on and on and on. They say God and the son is at the right hand. And I love this. He says, have gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers, having been subject to him. So as Peter's wrapping up this whole thing about suffering, right? Because this whole thing started with this suffering. He's like, and just in case you forgot, Jesus is in heaven. He's no longer here on earth. He's with God in heaven. He's at God's right hand, which is in, in biblical times. That means like second in command, the most powerful you can be at the right hand. You're sitting at the right hand of the king, the right hand of the throne. With the angels. So Jesus has authority over the angels. He has authority over the authorities. And he has authority over the powers. And the powers, again, is that word that we see in Ephesians 6.12, talking about the demons, talking about the the spiritual darkness that is battling in our world. And Peter says, but Jesus has authority over them. He says, why? Because they have been subjected to him. So not only when Jesus went down to the grave to say, I told you so, he reminded them now he has the gates, he has the keys to Hades, and they will stay there because now they are subject to him, and they will be there until judgment when they're just going to be cast there again. And the ones that are roaming, the ones that are messing up our world, causing conflict, because that's what our battle's about, right? Our battle's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers of power and the spiritual darkness in this world. That's what we're fighting. He said, God, those are all subject to Jesus. And that's ultimately what Peter's saying how you can deal with the suffering. Because everything that can be against you, God understands. He knows it. He's been through it. He's conquered it. He's reminded them that He's conquered it and, it, and they're subject to Him. So there's nothing that your God cannot do. I think of that little skit, guys. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. Right? There's nothing that our God cannot do. So just to recap everything that was in these four verses. He suffered. He died once. He was innocent. He died to flesh. He's alive in spirit. He's proclaimed to the fallen angels. His power saves on the cross just like it saved during the ark. He demonstrates his life. He demonstrates uh, the change in life, which is baptism through adults. There's resurrection. He's gone back to heaven. He's at God's right hand. The angels, authorities, and power has been given to him. The demonic power is subject to him. They cannot do anything without God's authority. Everything is subject to him, even those evil people causing us to suffer. And like the demons, at the right time, they will be dealt with. And that's how Peter ends this whole part. He's like, everything is subject to Christ because of who Christ was. And who Christ was is because of that resurrection from the cross. Everything. And everything will be dealt with at its right time. And so, yes, church, you're suffering. And yes, church, you're facing persecution. And yes, that will continue to the end of time. But it's okay because those people, those institutes, those things will be dealt with by God, by Jesus at exactly the right time. And that's the encouragement that Peter was giving to this early church. And he starts all the way back with the government, and he talks about slavery, because a lot of them were enslaved, he talks about marriage, and he continues moving forward. And then moving forward from here, he begins to talk about then how do we be good stewards of this? Building this huge argument for everything we have and everything that Jesus has done, and now we know that, now how are we good stewards with this? In other words, how do we go out? How do we go tell? how do we give this what well, we have this grace that we have how do we be good stewards of that and that's what the rest of the book is going to deal with and then we're going to look at that after easter which again is a perfect for after easter because what did jesus say to do after easter after his resurrection go and make disciples he's like go teach them what i've told you go to the ends of the earth make disciples something else i just wrote down just for kicks and giggles when we think about Jesus' life, His birth is not about Santa and Christmas and stockings, but it's about the manger. Easter is not about a bunny, but it's about the cross. Or Good Friday, really. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday is not about a bunny, it's about the cross. And Sunday morning is not about candy-filled eggs or candy-filled baskets. Not that any of those things are wrong, but it's about the empty grave. And I think it's good for us, church, us Christians, to keep those things in perspective. He came and was born in the manger. He lived life. Nothing to be talked about, Isaiah said. He was just a normal guy. He wasn't even that good-looking or popular, according to Isaiah. He went to die on a cross being completely innocent and not deserving it. And he proved that he was who he said he was, because the grave was empty. And if you begin to compare world religions... Jesus is the only person who's actually proved who he said he was. As you look at other religions around the world and different people that have started them, all those people are dead. And all those people are still in the grave. Not a single one of them has risen again like our Lord Jesus Christ has. Because the resurrection of Christ is the crux of this whole matter. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for this message. God, thank you for allowing me to talk for the last however many minutes. And God, as we head into Easter, help us to remember this. And as we head into suffering, whatever that may look like, in the years, weeks, months ahead, God, help us to hold on to these truths. God, help us to be Christ to the world. God, help us to be focused on the things of you and not the things of man. God, help us to go and share, as we're going to look at in a couple weeks. God, help us to be good stewards of this truth and this grace. God, shining light into darkness, debunking false teaching that's going around, all around us. And helping people as they deal with grief and frustration, persecution, to be there for them, to encourage them, to walk life with them, to get dirty with them, to pray with them. And let them know that they're not alone. Not only do they have Jesus (coughs) who suffered, but they also have the whole body of Christ who is in this together. They have the church, a city on a hill, a light that cannot be snuffed out (coughs) because you're in control. For this we are thankful. In your name we pray. Amen.